Code Fund Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to a brand new episode of Chaos Cast. This is the community podcast where we share use cases, experiences, and measuring open source community health. Elevating conversations about metrics, analytics, and software from the Community Health Analytics Open Source Software, for short, Chaos Project, to where you like to listen. Welcome to this episode. This podcast is brought to you by your friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash chaos. My name is Venia. I am going to be the doctor for this episode, I guess. And we have several wonderful panelists with us, including Nicole. Hi, my name is Nicole Huseman. I have been working in technology marketing for about 20 years in open source for about a decade. And I'm very happy to be here. And Brian. Hello. So my name is Brian Proffitt. I am a manager with the Open Source Program Office at Red Hat. I've been involved in some way, shape, or form with the open source and Linux communities for nearly 15 years now. Wonderful. Thank you. And my name is Venia. I'm your host. I am a community manager and full-stack marketer at sociallyconstructed.online, and I am incredibly excited to introduce someone that I've looked up to for years, someone who has really helped forge my career and ensure that Nicole and Brian can agree with us, Jono Bacon. Hi, thank you for having me on. And your words are far too kind, by the way, so I appreciate that. I mean, it's definitely no exaggeration, if I'm to be honest. (laughs) So let's go ahead and get started, though. Can you tell us, just as a nice introduction for our viewers, introduce yourself, what do you do, and how did you get into it? So in a nutshell, I'm a community strategy and collaboration consultant. I work with companies to help them build communities. Some of this is communities wrapped around a product or a service or a developer platform or something that's out in the open, and sometimes it's going to be internal communities. I work with a lot of banks, for example, around how they build internal communities. And my clients range from little kind of early stage organizations through to, you know, really big kind of multinational companies. I got into this in, in 1998, unwittingly, like I'm, I'm sure everybody here and everyone who's watching this, my brother introduced me to Linux back then, which was pretty unknown back in the late 90s in the general populace. And I, I was just fascinated by the notion of people coming together to build technology online. The internet was pretty nascent in the UK. I remember you had to pay 10 pence a minute to get online. And I had this great idea to, you know, for every minute that I'm online, I'll put 10 pence in the box next to the computer. And my parents were stupid enough to agree to that. And the bill did not line up with the amount of money in the box, shall we say. But it just got me really interested in people collaborating together. I didn't really understand why. And then just kind of descended into the open source world. And I, I feel very fortunate because I've, I've had a really fun career. And, and it's been because of hundreds and hundreds of people who've been very generous with their time and insight and opportunity. So, What do you think are some of the key strategies you've used over the years to propel your career in community management, community strategy? 
It's a good question, Nicole. I think there's kind of two pieces to that in some ways. There's like, what are we doing to build great communities? And I think the, the thing that's been really fun about this is it's, it's not often you get to, you know, participate in a new and burgeoning thing. You know, like when I got involved in this, I'd never heard the term community manager before. It, I didn't even hear the term community manager until I went for my job at Canonical in 2006. So I think we've all been kind of figuring out how this works. What are the names for things? What is the terminology? You know, what is the approach to metrics? What is the approach to gamification and to platforms and infrastructure and diversity and inclusion? All these different pieces. We've been kind of writing the the recipe book as we've been going along. And I think that's been really fun. And to me, the only way in which you do anything great is by lots of people feeding into the process and making loads of mistakes. And uh, so my goal has been you know, as I've experimented in my own world to talk a lot about it, write a lot of blog posts and talk on videos and do other kinds of things to share that. Not as the, this is the perfect way of doing things, just to kind of add to the zeitgeist so people can kind of talk through it. I think what's been really rewarding for me from a career perspective, I've just always had the kind of personality, I don't know how you would describe it, of if I'm doing something, I always try to kind of push the needle a little bit. So I'll give you an example. When I was 21, I was at university and I was contributing to the KD project and there was an opportunity to go down to London where they were running a Linux expo and they were allowing free booth space for open source projects. And I went down and did that and I ended up chatting to a couple of these guys in a pub one night and it turned out that they were setting up a Linux magazine called Linux Format, which has been going for years now. And I asked them if I could write an article for it and they said, yes, but if it's terrible, we won't publish it. It seemed quite reasonable. And to me, you know, there's an element of like, I guess I'm a bit of a chancer, like there's an opportunity to do something here. There's an opportunity to do, to do something there. And I think this is something that's so powerful about the open source world is that's in tons of people, you know, oh, there's a big challenge with COVID. Why don't we set up open source projects? There's a challenge with a lack of diversity and inclusion. Why don't we focus on improving that in lots of different ways? And I think that's what's been so cool about it. And we have an environment, I think that enables a lot of people to kind of explore those opportunities compared to a lot of industries where you, you can't question what's going on. You can't innovate in those different areas. So you know, I think that's been the key thing. And one thing that kind of jumped out to me because uh, back in shared my experiences getting into community management as well. And there's this interesting dichotomy that I think you really rose in of the fact that being a community manager wasn't necessarily a job title. It wasn't a thing that necessarily existed (laughs) when you started, but it did exist. There were online communities that came up back in early 2000s. And it's just kind of managing that dichotomy between we have this role and I really want to do this. I think we can manage this success, but the role doesn't quite exist yet with those people that are actually building them. How did you end up managing that as you went through your early days? It's weird for me because the honest answer to that is I don't know because I didn't really know what I was doing. I, I always felt quite attracted to, you know, so there's something so, you know, without sounding too weird, there's just something so amazing about people getting together to build things. And especially I think when it's an environment where, you know, we, we try to baseline the environment for every to have an opportunity. You know, uh, I remember when I was, for example, younger before, like when I lived at home with my parents and I was interested in tech, but I'd, there's a magazine in the UK called Computer Weekly and there'd be loads of jobs listed in there. And you'd be, always be talking about, you need a degree and you need to know enterprise this and enterprise that. 
And I felt quite excluded out of that because I didn't know anything about that world. I didn't know anyone who worked in that world. And what I loved about open source was there's an opportunity for lots of people to kind of come in and have a go. And I think having a go is what it's all about. What struck me back then was no one really knew how that worked. We just kind of showed up and it kind of happened. It was happening on Usenet and it was happening on mailing lists. And, but it just kind of happened. And I was interested in the science behind why that was happening. And what I found really fascinating was that back then, as much of it as it is today, whenever anybody talked about community, it was talked about as this really sacred principle. Like the community is what makes us who we are. It's what makes us so strong. The technology is really cool. And check it out. There's a new version of the Linux kernel. Go and check it out. But I think it's really about that, that community piece. But I, I got the feeling that there weren't a lot of people that I knew, at least, and I'm sure this was happening, who were really kind of delving into how to do that. And that's kind of what, where I wanted to move the needle. But I had no idea how that really worked. And it was, it was really, I was kind of frankly living in a bit of a bubble because when I, for example, when I went to Canonical and worked on Ubuntu, Canonical is a great company to work at. It certainly was when I was there. There wasn't a huge amount of accountability. I was basically left to my own devices. Uh, it wasn't like I had all of these KPIs and, you know, I'm sure many other people who are working in this have got very, very specific goals that they have to hit. It was a playground. And, and I feel very, very fortunate for that. But it made me realize when I left Canonical and I went to XPRIZE, okay, now we've got this really random, weird world of community. How does that interface with the reality of running a business and the fact that businesses talk in terms of dollars and cents and growth and revenue and ROI and all these different pieces? And that's kind of when the consulting piece kicked in. And that's where I got very interested in that side of things. Uh, but it's just literally a, a collection of happy coincidences and chances, I think. So, Jono, I, you, you said something a couple of seconds ago that, that, that kind of tweaked my interest a little bit because you were talking about getting into the science of this. And certainly, you know, a lot of my early experiences with uh, community management probably mirror your own and that of a lot right. of other community managers. We were all sort of flying by the seat of our pants. <laughs> we were managing communities and with whatever skill set we brought to the table. I came in with writing, so I would focus on documentation. Yeah. Other people would come in with coding and development skills, and they would focus on development processes and uh, improving those as part of the community. Mm. So, you know, like you have a unique point of view because you've kind of watched this from the start and were one of the people who really started to codify what community management was. So, like, as we kind of, and, and I know I'm sort of sneaking up on the community health aspect, but could you talk about like how you viewed that science part of it? How has that evolved in your experience, like early pioneer days to where we are now? I think that's such a great question, Brian. And, and I think you're totally right. You know, people came in with their own flavor. Like I, I can, you know, I'm really into music and I compare it to how music has evolved over the years. And, you know, like in my world, which is hard rock, you know, you have the punk bands, then you have the, the early heavy metal bands, and then you have the thrash bands and the death metal bands, and they all kind of came in. And there was a, a real kind of like new ideas, new flavors formed. And I think that really happened a lot in the open source world and, ha and continues to do so. What's odd to me about, about this question in some ways is I think I've always had like a, if I'm being honest, a kind of an ideal state of what I think community should be. And I've always advocated that, even in cases where I don't know if I could even meet that ideal state. Like, so for example, I'm very structured. Like when I work with clients, I'm very structured in, 
in um, breaking down objectives and breaking it down into tactical planning and cadence-based cycles and like super organized program management type stuff. And part of the reason I think I, I entered into that world was it just struck me that there was a lot of really great ideas that never got steam and never got traction because there wasn't that program management piece behind it. And I learned a lot of that when I was at Canonical. But I, the, the big mistake that I think I made back then and really only stopped making this as a mistake, I'd say four or five years ago was I just wasn't data-driven enough. So I was really interested in the psychological science, like this, this notion of belonging and, and building a sense of self-worth and dignity. And when you get that in a feedback cycle, it enables people to feel like they can have an impact. And then that brings, builds belonging, which builds retention. All the squishy stuff was really interesting. But when it came down to the data, it was always more of a hunch for me. And I think part of the reason why I wasn't as data-driven as I should have been was because I was scared. I was just scared of failure. You know, it was a little weird because when I was at Canonical, you know, it was, there was so much focus in the open source world around Ubuntu for good and bad reasons. <laughs> and consequently, you know, when I think when you're in an element of the public eye, even though it's within the open source, so it's not like a Brad Pitt or anything like that. You don't want to make very public mistakes. And I think I locked myself off to the data, not completely. To me, when you look at data, it's the patterns that you see in it that's really interesting that determines, uh, that helps with the science. So that was really interesting, I think, when I started embracing that. But then also literally having a couple of beers with a friend of mine, Stuart Langridge, where he just mentioned behavioral economics and a video by this guy called Rory Sutherland. And I, when I discovered behavioral economics down the rabbit hole, I went because it was like, finally, there is a blueprint for some of the weird psychological patterns we see in communities. Because the thing I worried a lot about was I want community to be something that makes the world a better place. But I was worried that a very, very small number of people just naturally are attuned to this. I'd include everyone on this call and many people who are watching this are naturally attuned to this. It's just kind of what we dig. But to, to, to make it a global thing, you need to make it a teachable profession. And I worried that there wasn't really a language and a framework around that. And that's what I wanted to set out and do. And behavioral economics helps a lot with that. So it's, yeah, I, I, I think, again, like anything, I think it's been kind of an imperfect journey, but ultimately I managed to get there in the end. Yeah. And, and it's interesting you say that because my experience having worked with you and, you know, watched you work has been, you know, you were one of the early, early advocates for, you know, gamification, which you mentioned earlier, right. which would seem to be a data-rich source of information right then and there. Yeah. So it, it's funny how, you know, that kind of eventually led into, you know, talking to Stuart and getting into behavioral science. So, Well, and yeah. that's actually kind of an interesting piece because, you know, when I was at Canonical, you know, we experimented with Ubuntu Accomplishments, which is this, this kind of spare time project to play with gamification. And I think it's around that time, actually, I'd kind of forgotten about this, which is when I started realizing the importance of data, because I had no idea. I thought gamification was cool and we could do something, but I had really no idea whether it would work. And that's when I started realizing I'm sitting on a pile of data. I've built this like kind of test framework for the system. Now I can actually not just look at the numbers, but look at what is the pattern between those numbers. And that's when I started thinking, okay, well, you know, wow, data's really insightful, isn't it? And everybody else is like, yeah, of course it is, you idiot. <laughs> it's like, okay, welcome to the party, John. Yeah, speaking as someone who spends a lot of time in Google Data Studio, I have to say putting together that infrastructure and that framework, those years of taking those numbers and looking at, 
okay, is gamification really working or is it just training people to receive rewards that may not help with the community? So being able to elaborate on what those gamification factors are and take this notion of the numbers and the statistics telling a story and giving it to the community to tell a voice is really, really powerful. Yeah. I think, I think one of the challenges with this that kind of obviously is very closely aligned with, with chaos that worries me a lot about data is, and, and, I, and I, there's a kind of a thread to this that applies to content as well, is I worry that we, we've, in recent years, we've kind of become data fetishists, that we're all about all of the data, you know, and tracking every conceivable thing. And I think there's, because technology has become cheaper and more accessible, and we've got the ability to track lots of things, and we've become a more data orientated kind of profession. I think it's great that we have that. And we, I love the fact that we've got, you know, Chaos and Petersian and all these different organizations that are doing this. But what I sometimes worry a little bit is, is that, is that there is a lot of focus on the, the numbers as opposed to the patterns behind them. And sometimes when you've got so many numbers, I think people, it turns into the data science Olympics where people are like, okay, well, we can bring these five different data sources together and develop this really unique insight. And I, th- I think we're kind of facing a little bit of where less is more, you know, like, for example, when I'm working with clients, one of the things I always recommend is instead of saying, should we be tracking pull requests and issues and all the rest of it, instead start out with what are the questions we have that we don't know, that we cannot back up with evidence. And one of them could be, is our developer community responsive enough to new pull requests? Now, okay, how do we answer that question? Well, we kind of need to know time to first response. We need to get a sense of, which of the developers are new, which are existing developers. And then I think it gives you the minimum number that you can figure it out. It's, you know, there's this technique called Muntzing. There was this guy called Earl Madman Muntz who ran a TV factory and he needed to reduce costs. So what he did is he went around to all these kind of old school 50s TV sets and would just remove components until they stopped working. And then he'd put the last component in uh, and that enabled him to cut costs. And I think we kind of need to do that with with data in some ways is say, what are the outcomes we need to discover? And then what's the minimum number of data points that we need to care about? And I, I personally would like to see more of a conversation about that in our community. And maybe that's happening. I haven't seen it, but kind of starting with the outcome and the learnings and then kind of pulling the data from there. Yeah. And I definitely jive with that so much. And kind of speaking with another chaos panelist, Matt Broberg wasn't able to make it, but we had a conversation a few weeks ago about vanity metrics and what a vanity metric really is and when it's useful and when it's not useful. The way that I tend to build dashboards for these communities is you have a dashboard that tells you you're going 75 miles an hour on the road, slow down, speed up, or keep going, you're fine. And then there's a report where it's like, all right, pull the car off to the side of the road. Your engine is smoking. What happened? So a vanity metric on a dashboard might be very useful for community X, but terrible for community Y and still useful in a report for community Z. That's super interesting because I think what you're talking about there as well, Vanya, is like the context is everything, right? Within, you know, because I, I agree with you. Like some, sometimes you just need a number or a flashing light or something to indicate whether you're on the right track. And then sometimes you want to kind of get into that analytical data, you know, like GitHub stars is one of those ones that fascinates me because I just, I've never quite got GitHub stars. That to me is the most vanity of vanity metrics for many, for many people, but it's now become such an industry thing. And so many businesses care about it. 
I'm not sure if it's still a vanity metric or whether it's now an actual metric. You know, talking about these vanity metrics, one of the things that I was asked for at one point along the way was go figure out who your your top contributors are within a particular community. Right. And I thought, well, or, or you're most active or, or what have you, right? It would, not, not really most active, but, but the ones who, who matter. And, and I thought, well, we could look at, you know, who's bringing in the most pull requests or the most commits or the most th- this and that, right? But yeah, yeah. what about those contributors who may not have the most of something, the most pull requests, the most commits, but what they are contributing, and maybe it's not even code, right? But what they are contributing, it actually really does matter. And do you have, you know, any insights, you know, in, in, in that right. area? I mean, that was really, you know, troubling or, you know, kind of challenging to me. Yeah. I think it's like the, it's like the holy grail of community management, I think, is figuring that out. <laughs> yeah. I still haven't figured it out. The way I tend to think about this is I don't think we'll ever be able to get completely clean data to ever come to a complete evaluation of of that overall kind of community life cycle of someone's participation because, you know, we're in the business of tangible and intangible value. You know, the pull request is great, but if you are a really mean-spirited, nasty person that writes great code, well, you're kind of detracting in, as in the community. You're not just adding value. So it's really tough, I think. Kind of the conclusion that I've come to here is I'm a big fan of, I guess, what I would call kind of an aggregate evaluation of the value. And what I mean by that is, is, for example, you know, when I am talking about community, I'll often talk about this model that I developed over the years called the community participation lifecycle, which is basically your casual members and then your regulars and then your core. And then to me, I think having milestones that are in your system to say, you've graduated from a casual member to a regular member and then to a core member is really useful. And you may have like more kind of periods than just those three. I think that's really helpful. And one of the reasons why I'm a big fan of discourse is because they've got a trust model built into it that allows you to kind of do that. But what's interesting about the trust model is it's formulated from lots of different things. It's how much you read, it's how much you write, it's um, how often you show up to the community and it's, you know, did you fill in your profile how many of the things that did you write were like. And I really like that kind of multidiscipline approach. So I guess a multifaceted approach. Uh, And I would love to explore that more. Like there is a project called SourceCred that does something kind of similar where you can essentially define a sliding scale. And when I first heard about Discourse doing this, I started a little project called GH. I can't even remember the name of it now. It was a GitHub at the time to try and create something similar for GitHub users. And it was just kind of like a me screwing around in Python project. It didn't really go anywhere. But it raised the really tough question of what is the comparative value of different tasks, right? So, you know, it begs the question, okay, well, if we're going to assign points to something, so you get kind of a karma score to get you then to the next level, you know, what is the value of answering a question compared to submitting a pull request? And I think that's really, really tough. And I don't think there's a good answer for that. And I think one of the things that we sometimes get wrapped up in, in the open source world, and I'm certainly guilty of this, is that we're so used to looking at problems from the perspective as as a logic problem, because we're so used to code, that I think we try to find 
kind of the ideal situation, the perfect implementation. And I think we never get there. So to me, you know, where you are on that sliding scale, and this is why I think projects like Chaos are super helpful in helping us to think through these things and bring, a, bring in a really insightful set of minds together. Even if that just helps to say, okay, you know what? Nicole has hit level two. Does this mean look, Nicole is perfect in every way? No. But what it does tell us is that Nicole is a consistently interesting and valuable member of our community in very different ways. And I think that's a really exciting area that I personally would like our industry to go in, you know? Yeah. And I think it's the biggest challenge that certainly every company that I work with faces is, okay, I've got a thousand people in my community. Like, how, how do I know the people who are active and who are not active? How do I know the people who've got the various skills that I can connect together? And I think that data analysis piece is, is kind of missing, so. Yeah, yeah. John, I was sipping back from the data question for a few minutes because hmm. obviously, you know, you have a, a large breadth of experience around community management. So we were kind of curious, like, what do you feel like is the least understood aspect of being a community manager? Right. Like, do you mean, do you mean p- people understanding what community managers do? Yeah, pretty much. Right. Like, right, you know, right. my father-in-law is like, well, who do you manage? And I'm like, uh, nobody, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Here at a McDonald's, I have more people than you. Right. Yeah. That's such a, that's another great question. I mean, I think that one of the things that I see is a recurring problem with businesses who see the value of community and they hire a community manager and they bring them in is I think that the, the, again, without wishing to sound like some horrible buzzwordy person, there's kind of like different types of value that are not connected together effectively. So, you know, whenever I've run the community leadership summit every year, I'd hear the same thing in the pub every night with people who I've known for years or new friends that I meet there. And we're having the social event. We're all stood around eating little appetizers. And people often say like, I've done all this work and the company doesn't get what I do. And I think part of the problem for that is I think community professionals really focus on the things that we know, right? Which is the data and blogging and awareness and social media and governance pieces and open source and all of these different elements. And I think a lot of community managers, when they go into an organization, they want to make sure that their skills are clear and that they've got the ability to move the needle in those areas and they generate great results. But then you'll get an executive who's never who's not involved in this because it's just not their world. And then they look at this person who's receiving a lot of money for their salary. They're having to go to all these conferences, all of this swag, all of the, they see it as a cost center. And then they say, what do we get out? What are we getting out of this? And the problem I, I have with this is I think if, if a lot of community managers and anyone who's listening and watching to this, if you're going into a new community management gig, I'd strongly encourage you to do this, is to go in there and understand what are the goals of the business what do they define success as? And then how do you present your success in your role in line with that? So if you find out, for example, the business is, cares deeply about brand awareness, then all the great work you do in social media and blogging and all the rest of it, you can align that with that goal. And I think a lot of community managers don't do that. So therefore they struggle with these, you know, with this kind of disconnect with the exec team. And I think it's kind of on us to do that because you're not going to get an executive team who are naturally going to say, how do we align this specific department's value with what we want to do? I think we need to kind of be proactive in doing so. And I think that's one of the things that's that's most understood. So consequently, 
sadly, when I've talked to a lot of like clients and prospective clients, often the story is I hired a community manager that were there for a year and they didn't really do anything. And, you know, with some exceptions, obviously there's some people who literally go to a company, don't do anything, but every profession is guilty of those folks. By and large, when I pierce beneath the surface, that's just not true. They did a ton of stuff. It's just that the value that they generated was not interfacing with what the company wanted to see. And it's just a sad story. So it's like, I think that piece is really, in my mind, fairly misunderstood. So a lot of, you know, people who, because frankly, I think most organizations don't necessarily know a lot about community because a community can be anything from a knitting circle to Kubernetes, right? So I think it becomes really difficult to kind of bridge those two pieces together. And that's the one thing I really would like to see because I think a lot of really good people struggle in their jobs. And I know some people have just got burnt out from community management because they're like, it was really depressing when that happened. I was working my backside off and it just wasn't appreciated. So Yeah. And honestly, that that's me. I've been in that position before. I've gone in and speaking as the anthropologist, I'm like, yeah, I'll build this community for you. Social science, this is going to be really great. Right. And yeah. then come the end of it all, we have an executive who's never heard of the scientific method being changed into the social scientific process. And I'm over here going, how do I speak to you? How do I prove this? And it it got me into trouble and it got me frustrated. Yeah. I think it's really difficult as well because, you know, I think a lot of this is about translating information between different groups of people. I'll always, I'll never forget when I was at XPRIZE, the founder of XPRIZE, this guy called Peter Diamandis, is a very, very unique human being in every possible way. And I don't mean that in a, you know, veiled negative thing. He's a really, really good person. He does amazing stuff. And he's just, just a really interesting person. And one thing that he just said to me was, it's not about having all of the answers. It's about packaging up the right information for the right audience. And I think that's one thing that I'd love to see more of in the community management world is how do we have those conversations with, with, with executives and different departments? Like a lot of marketing leads, I think, in many cases are quite threatened by community because they don't quite understand it. And they have a very fixed workflow. With mo- most marketeers are about driving leads. So they're like, the way in which I evaluate my success is very, very clear. Facebook advertising to email nurture to lead gen and then connecting in with the sales team. And I know a lot of community managers are like, you know, you never ever want to work for a marketing lead. It's terrible. And I don't think that's fair. I think it's just that we haven't, we haven't bridged that communication. And I think because this is a version in industry, it is on us to kind of figure out how to do that. But we'll get there. I mean, I bet you anything, every industry has experienced this. So, Yeah, there's definitely a lot of similarities from a marketing background. And I'm sure that Nicole can probably share that as well. Absolutely. I, I feel the pain almost daily. <laughs> I feel like Nicole, Nicole's got this view of, I want to talk about this, I probably shouldn't. You <laughs> clients in my head right now. So, <laughs> well, you'll hear about it in my pick of the week. You're teasing <laughs> with the information again. Yeah, I, I've actually been taking. Well, look for uh, for a while now in terms of that that bridge or that intersection of uh, how open source hasn't just changed how software is built, but it's really upended or changed how traditional marketing. Yeah. yeah, Right. I mean, it's, it's more a relationship. It's more, I think, I think uh, most of us on this 
call, if not everyone knows Jeffrey Osher Mixon. And oh, yeah. he and I used to uh, work together and are still very close friends. And he and I have explored the topic as well. Uh, you know, the community management and, and marketing, there are so many different, uh, so, so many similarities. Yeah. I think the other thing there is it's understandable for a lot of organizations to think the community team should be in the marketing team because they see it as, well, this is all outreach, right? But what's interesting is most companies don't see customer success and marketing in the same team. And it's all outreach, right? I mean, sales is technically outreach. We just tend to get lumped in, I think, because I think it's largely a a, a not particularly well understood thing. And often it's dealing with cold leads. But the, the, the impetus with marketing is usually around leads or brand, although not, I think unless you're a Coca-Cola, you don't tend to spend a lot of money on brand marketing. But with us, with community, of course, it's, it is about, like you touched on, Nicole, it's, it's about relationships. And, and that's a long game. But I think the good yeah. news is, you know, the, the story is changing. I think businesses are starting to understand it. And I think, frankly, we can thank, you know, a lot of the social media for that as well. I think people are really realizing the value of, long form relationship building. So yeah, I completely agree. And I'm the reason for the future of community management with people powered coming out, a bunch of ideas are coming through. We have a bunch of new books on the horizon, which is really cool. Where do you see this phenomenon of open source community management moving forward as it permeates the closed economic spheres? Let's be nice here. Yeah, another great question. I mean, I, I think that what's exciting to me is it's just changed so much, you know? I just think we're, we're learning, we're experimenting, we're discovering things that are obvious in hindsight, but were not obvious while we were going through it. And, and I think we're going to see it evolve in a, in a number of specific areas. So one is, I think we're going to start seeing communities becoming more and more of a priority inside of, inside of really large enterprises. You know, I mean, I've experienced this myself, like working with a bunch of banks where they, they don't necessarily just want to build open source communities, in some cases, in a source. But what they really care about is unlocking the silos that people are locked in and getting people to collaborate together. And in a source is a great way of doing that. So I think understanding the dynamics of running a technology project inside the walls of a business, I think is going to be, is going to be great. And, you know, there's been lots of great work at the Inner Source Commons and elsewhere around this that I think is really fueling that. I also think that we're going to hopefully start seeing the, the, the business kind of language of community becoming clearer, you know, where community reports into, what expectations should look like. And I think the reason why that's becoming better is because there's more examples now. I think most businesses are pretty reluctant to do significantly new things outside of their comfort zone and setting up a community, I think can be pretty nerve wracking, but now you've got, you know, the open source movement, you know, what's going on in kind of smart contracts and crypto, what we're seeing in, you know, product communities like Salesforce and, you know, places like that. Now I think more organizations are like, oh, I'm interested in this. And then they go and hunt out somebody in that organization to go and ask them questions about it. So I think we'll probably start seeing more of that. And I'm also really happy to just see the increased focus on diversity. And we, we, we talk a lot, I think, in our world, and as we rightly should do, about gender diversity, sexual diversity, political diversity. And I think that's really important. And that's a, a mission we need to continue on. 
But I'm also thrilled to see the diversity of communities, you know, like people building art communities and people building documentation communities and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, diversity in every form to me, I think we need to encourage. And I think we'll, again, we'll have more examples of that. Like I was literally this morning talking to a guy who wants to set up a community for, for farmers who basically they can't sell their meat and they want to be able to donate the meat to kind of homeless shelters. And he was like, I don't know how to do this. I, I, I don't know what a community is and how it works. And I think we're going to start seeing more and more of those things. I think the format that we've been building in the open source world is so applicable to many other places as well. So I think we're, we're definitely kind of like uh, the community lab <laughs> in the open source world, I think, for everybody else. I agree. John, oh, as, we, so, uh, as we look at the Chaos Project, can you talk about what role you see the Chaos Project playing in really helping us all understand the metrics of healthy communities? And I know when we say healthy communities, that's a lot to unpack already. Right. right. <laughs> but what role does the Chaos Project play there? And then looking ahead, what would you like to see from the Chaos Project? Yeah. I mean, I see chaos as a really, really important project in, you know, number one is just bringing some really insightful people together to have important conversations about this topic. So instead of these conversations being scattered all over the internet and all over the world at conferences, they're happening in one place and insight will naturally be furnished from that, I think, which I think is great. And I think that's really important because metrics has become something that's very interesting to people. I think community health is a natural follow on from that. And again, I don't think it, we need to be able to, I don't think you can perfectly define health. I think it's impossible in the same way that I can't, I don't think you can perfectly define health, physical health of a human being, because, you know, your version of health is going to be different to my version of health. And that kind of presumes happiness as well. And we all have different definitions of happiness. So to me, if I could wave a magic wand, if there's one thing I would like to see come out of chaos and just literally one thing, and if, if chaos did nothing else, it would be to basically say, it would be effectively an infographic that would say, these are the 10 things that we should count or the eight things that we should measure. And here, here's a way to think about it. And then other people can build tools and services and run conferences and everything else around those eight or 10 things. I think what we need is that we need, a, we need a common language around out of the billion metrics that are out there, what are the eight things we should care about? In the same way that, you know, the GNU focused on a standard set of tools, the Free Software Foundation focused on, you know, a set of licenses. It, it centralized, I think, people around those pieces. And I think one thing I've learned, it kind of gets back to Peter Diamandis's comment about you know, it's not about having all the answers, just the right answers packaged up well. I think people think in frameworks, you know, whether it's the 12-step lists on BuzzFeed or whether it's like, I have a five-step approach to how do you do an interview? Like, you know, Vinya knows this, like I recently launched a course for how to get your dream community job. And one of the things in there is how to kind of get through the interview and it's broken into five pieces. And the reason for that is because I think people can more easily understand things when they're broken down into into chunks that fit together in a diagram. And I would love to see that come out of chaos. So then when you have, you know, a company that's new to open source or, you know, and they're like, 
how do we measure this? And then everybody's like, well, you use the chaos method and that's it. And they go to the website and they can go and read it. And then all the tools and documentation feeds into that. That's what I would love to see. And now that's a hard challenge. And there'll be a million people out there that will say, well, you didn't pick the right set of things. <laughs> and that's okay. <laughs> you know, we will never have yeah. complete uniformity on it. But I think starting somewhere and then having the ability for people to pro- propose new ideas that go into that, I think will be wonderfully valuable. So, yeah. And I look really, really forward to seeing all of our viewers kind of make that reality, I hope. Yeah. All right. Well, I gotta say, I wish we had another hour. I gotta say, we would love to continue. But unfortunately, we're kind of heading toward the end of this episode. So I think that we should move forward into picks. So Jono, essentially what we like to do at the end of a lot of our podcasts is we like to make a pick. And this could be really anything business related, personally related. Someone talked about video games. Just one thing that you think is going really well in your universe. Wow. It's a good question. I, I, the problem is I've got like five things I'd like to pick. <laughs> it's kind of narrowing it down things. I think, I think the thing that I'm just really thrilled, and this is going to sound super general, I think, is I just like the fact that people feel comfortable challenging me. You know, like there, I think we, I think people are very uncomfortable providing blunt feedback because they're worried they may offend somebody. They may, they may seem disrespectful in, in some form. And the thing that I'm, and I've just noticed it recently because I've just, in the last couple of weeks, I've had a preponderance of people give me really good feedback. And some of it's been critical and as it should be, and some of it's been, you know, complimentary. But I love that because to me, my biggest fear in the world is that I'm doing something wrong and no one will tell me. So I keep going down that path. It's, it's, it's kind of a bit of a paranoia if I'm being honest with you. And so I try to say to all of my friends and I consider you know, all of you, my friends, like, just tell me if I'm doing something wrong. You'll never get me getting mad at you. and You'll never get me shouting at you or being angry with you. I may be surprised, but I think when we open that door, it's, it's, it's important to do that. And I've learned so much. I'll never forget when I left Canonical in 2014, I think it was. Arrogantly, I thought I had this community business fairly figured out. I would never say that publicly, but in my head, I thought I'd figured out most of the key things that we need to do. And when I think about what I've learned in the last six years, I wasn't even close. I was a million miles away from what I thought I was in my head. And the reason why I think I understand more of it now is because people have have shared their ideas and they've, and, and they've challenged my ideas. And I would encourage everybody to take that approach as well. So, Wow, that was quite the pick. It's amazing. Uh, how about you, Brian? Well, so something that's happened in, in my world has been uh, a physical relocation from one community in the Midwest to a new community in, in the Southeast. And so it's got me thinking about how people can move between, you know, open source communities, because one of the things that you can't help but do is immediately draw comparisons of the new place that you're living to the old place that you've lived. And I think this might be a useful thought experiment for community managers to do around onboarding. Like when they have new people coming in there to community, you don't necessarily want to cater to every whim. It's like, well, in my community, old place, we used to do it like this. And, you know, but maybe there are ways to find 
small and easy comfort points for new people coming into a community and, and making them feel a little more welcome without necessarily making drastic changes to your own community. So it's it just something that's been uh, going through as I look for the nearest cool ice cream place around here. So. Well, and that's definitely all the more important in a post-COVID world, right? Where people are joining online communities so often and so frequently, and there's so many changes in their lives. That's a really, really good pick. Thank you. And I know everyone is waiting for beta, <laughs> but I'm going to go first. <laughs> awesome. The last, for me, it has a lot to do with this, right? Jono is someone who's been really important in the formation of my career. And we're seeing that development happen, but he's not the only one. And I have found it really important thinking back after this podcast to all of those other people I wanted to talk to, have an hour with if I could go back in time. And I remember Ryan Dice saying, if you want a meeting with someone, read their book. It's a meeting you can have anytime. And that's, I think, my pick right now. If there's someone you truly want to follow, you want to be like, see if they have something written. And it doesn't need to be a book. It could be a blog. It could be a podcast, a YouTube video. Hit them up. Maybe see if there's some piece of content that you can read. So with that, we're going to move to the most anticipated one at the very oh. end, Nicole. <laughs> Oh, gosh. I think I've already alluded or to, to this or spoken about it. I am, when I'm not busy with my nine-year-old, I am diving into people-powered. And I'm looking at that book specifically because, I, because of this intersection between traditional marketing and really community management and the fact that I really do think in having conversations over the last, I don't know how many years, right, that, that open source has just, it really has upended traditional marketing. And even corporate marketing is just not the same. I don't think it's the same, you know, and whether or not we acknowledge that. I think it's much more about building a relationship. And if you think about whether it's from a brand perspective, you know, or, or getting folks to delivering a message that resonates with folks and having them take action on that message, it really is about building a relationship with folks. And if I think about the kinds of things that I gravitate to, it's about having discussions thought-provoking discussions with cross-industry thoughtful discussions. And so I'm diving into that book and really looking for ways to describe this. But that, so that's, that's kind of where I am right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've finally got a reader. <laughs> oh, you, you have tons. <laughs> My publisher's going to be thrilled. We sold one. <laughs> oh. No, you, there are so, so many of us out there, Jono. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate uh, I'm sure that. They would love to hear anything more about People Powered. It's definitely a wonderful book. We do recommend it here at Chaos. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, uh, People Powered is a book I put out in um, November, I think it was. And the basic gist of it is 
the reason why I wrote it was, you know, years ago, I wrote this book called The Art of Community, which I, I really wanted it to be kind of like a book that someone could read and figure out how to build a community with. And I think it ended up becoming way too technical in nature. You know, it's very naturally orientated towards open source communities, which I think is, which is obviously great for open source people. But, you know, I did two editions of that. It's like 600 pages. It's about this thick now. And so I'd be talking to, you know, founders or, you know, people who are working at, not in the community space. And they'd say, oh, I just got your book. I'm excited to read it. And I'd think you're going to get lost within 10 pages. It's just going to be way too deep, right? So I wanted to write something that was going to be a, a more general purpose, higher level business book. And that was people powered. So the first part of it really walks through, assuming no one knows anything about communities and just talks about the value of it and why it's important. And then the second piece really goes through a framework for how to think about building communities. And then the third piece is about how to bake that into a business. How do you hire the right people and where does it report into? And the idea of it was it's the kind of book you can pick up at an airport while you're waiting for your flight, sit on the plane and get through most of it by the time you land, which in itself was one heck of a challenge trying to get it down into 270 pages, which is what most business books are. So... Yeah. So if, if that sounds interesting, you can be my second reader. Go and check it out. <laughs> no, it's doing pretty well. I'm very happy with the results so far. And thank you for the kind words. So, yeah, Absolutely. And to any viewers who are watching, just go to chaos.community and hit to the podcast set. It'll be in the show notes here for you at jonahbacon.com. Uh, that having been said, I think that wraps up this episode. Thank you so much, Jonah, for joining us and to thank all you. of our viewers as well. If you want to stay up to date on future episodes, subscribe for free to this podcast on any favorite podcast app. We're actually on Apple, which is really wonderful. Share this podcast with your friends, your colleagues. We would definitely appreciate it if we're going to build that chaos method. And if you have ideas for future episodes, topics, or even would like to come on as a guest, please email us at podcast at chaos.community. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And until next time, This is your chaos community. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode, with 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, their enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage options, and next-generation network. Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price that you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash chaos.